Hey everyone, before the big Hi Guys intro, please may I request of you to subscribe to and rate this podcast, as apparently that's really important in the algorithmic world that is podcast land. Once again, please subscribe to and rate this podcast. On with the show. Hi guys, welcome to this episode of How to Wow, featuring our second dame within, I think, a week now? This is Dame Emma Thompson, who said yes to our request to come and annoy her within the walls of her very own house. She is just the bomb. The bomb. The absolute bomb. But whatever you do, please don't tell Dame Judy Dench I said that. I'm sure she wouldn't mind, but, you know, it's not worth the risk. Cue the conversation. This morning's been so enjoyable for me, so I got up, uh, drove in to London to do a job that I love in the best radio studio in the world overlooking the whole of London I love your radio studio I know, well no it's new now it's different now oh it's different now we're at the top of the tower oh bloody hell oh, it's amazing we look down on the Isle of Dogs it's, um, it's fantastic finished the show got on my Brompton yeah um, rode seven miles to here three regions park and um, listening to your Desert Island disc from ten years ago oh coming to interview you or talk to you and I'm like it doesn't really get any better than this so thank you <laughs> oh you smooth talking <laughs> um well I um you asked me when you came upstairs you said oh why did you agree to do this and I said because you genuinely appeared to want me on your podcast perhaps you didn't actually mean it but actually the fact of the matter is the reason I agreed to do it is because every time I've come on your show I have so loved it and I've so appreciated you as part of our culture, as someone who speaks very honestly and openly and genuinely, um, straight to the heart. You're very humane, I find. And I find quite a lot of interviews to be not quite like that. I mean, you're not an interviewer, obviously that's wrong, but when I've when you've actually spoken to me, I've always really, really enjoyed it. And I thought I'd love to do a podcast with Chris. He's a wise man. But you can always be wiser. So You can always be wiser, absolutely, but it's good to sort of start off at our age <laughs> with a little bit of wisdom. I mean, isn't that the case? You start off with the thumbnails full and then you have to spend the rest of your life just desperately trying to sort of augment it little bit by little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Growth, I think, is the thing. Discomfort. Self-induced discomfort is helpful. Yes. On a daily basis. That's true. And sort of letting go. I think when I turned 60, I, I something interesting happened, actually, um, about a year and a half ago. I suddenly thought I have absolutely no interest whatsoever in any of my opinions. I I can I have them and I can trot them out and I can be expressive about them and I can be articulate about them, but they don't matter. There's something I can't attach to anymore, if you see what I mean. And I think that it was really quite odd because I'm so opinionated. It was very odd to say, to think to oneself, but opinions are just the conditions, they're just conditioned i mean i of course i'm a feminist i was born you know down the road in paddington 61 years ago and live i've lived in this place all my life so it's a long time in the same place 
I mean, Shakespeare was there before us, wasn't he? Because he's, you know, he said, um, "There's no such thing as good or evil. It's just thinking that makes it so." Exactly. So. Is that where we are now? What me or yeah. have you realised that it's the thinking that makes it so? Oh well, yes, I I realised that a long time ago, but it's even more than that. It's even more than that. It's uh, l- letting go of personality, you know. And it, what's interesting about it is, of course, you can only do that when you're not with other people. When you're with people and you're talking to them, you must engage with them. And the only way you can engage with them is through the personality that you have developed and has developed inside you through many, many years. And whilst it has changed and it's, you know, it's there are stitches coming away here and then, lots of it is in tatters and there's threadbare bits and then there's new little patches and stuff. It's, you know, it's an interesting place. But it's not, I don't really identify with it, if you see what I mean. In my daily life, going about, looking about, I don't inhabit what I'm inhabiting now. I think, And I think that's age. The, the whole identification with anything, you know, that's a journey, isn't it? And the personality um, feature or character is interesting too because I heard that I think the word personality has its etymology in, in Greek and it comes, it's, it's comes from, a, I think it means mask. Yeah, and I persona. Think the, I think, persona. And I think the two masks on the Girl Guides badge and the Cubs badge, the happy and the sad. Yes, that's what you get for acting, isn't it? That's right. It's the drama mask. And so, so that's what, so our personality is our mask. Yeah, and it then is. we become attached to our mask because it's helpful, useful. We can hide behind it. Yeah. We can sell ourselves with it, and then you get to a certain point in your life, whether it's chronological or experiential, and you feel like maybe you don't you don't need it anymore. You know, so do you let it go? Do you, do you cast it off? Do you let it go? I was talking to Dawn French about this last week, mm. and she was talking about forgiveness. And she's written a new novel mm. and it's about forgiveness and it's about, look, you know, investigating yourself. Why do I feel the need to forgive others or not forgive others? Or the fact that I can, you know, I am allowed to forgive or not forgive. And is that about yourself? And I said, I asked her, what's the difference between forgiving someone of something and letting it go? And neither of us really knew the answer. What, what's your take on that? interesting isn't it because i joined up to that wonderful thing the forgiveness project years and years ago and the forgiveness project what was that about that's the first thing that's come into my head it was about people who someone who'd done something dreadful meeting the person who they'd done it to and talking about it so what is that that's seeing someone that you haven't been able to see because mostly most of the time we can only do dreadful things to other people when we can't really see them or feel them as other human beings right so perhaps forgiveness is is really seeing and understanding something and, and then you you have to let it go you have to let it go letting goes so God, why is it so hard? But it is really, really hard. And it's actually very hard to let go of personality. And I don't know, I can't do that yet. I can only speak as I'm speaking to you. I, I, I don't know what, I, what other way I would speak to you, you know, because I've got this voice, this body, this demeanour. You know, I can't change. Well, I can change it because I'm an actor, so I'm constantly putting on masks and taking them off. You know, and I don't know what I'm like when I'm on my own. 
<laughs> you know, um, forgiveness though is it's an is this an it's an action, isn't it? And you can be very self conscious about it. You know that sense of oh, I forgive you, I will forgive these people, and it's very it's very part much part of the Christian tradition, isn't it? But I mean, so many Christians are so fantastically unforgiving. Um, because they think they have the choice not to forgive, and that's power. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it depends where it's coming from, doesn't it? If it's coming from a sense of moral superiority, which we can see often, no, I've chosen to forgive you because I'm a better person than you. Um, that's one thing. If it comes, well, it can. sometimes I forgive because I just can't be bothered or I don't have the energy to hold a bloody grudge. I, I really don't. I'm good, good at that. I, I can't remember about the offence that people have caused me. I just forget because somehow or other my personality is such that it doesn't attach some things I find hard to let go of and forgive, but mostly I, I forget, actually. And then some people, well, you think about, think about feuds, think about the mafia, think about Ireland, think about the ways in which people are, find it impossible to forgive actions that have taken place hundreds of years ago or tens of years ago. That's so messed up. Talk about attachment. So I suppose it's probably one of the most important things you can do is let that go, let that sense of of resentment and and not mind, not mind when people get at you and or ridicule you or throw contempt at you, both of which we've both experienced just from the press here in this country who are very, very good at that. Um and of course, that's a mild version of terrible events in people's lives. But core, you get heavy, heavy, heavy in your body and your soul if you carry that stuff around with you. So there's two, two things about that. So the, a very, um, very wise um, Tibetan holy man never used to speak um, at audiences, but he used to he used to take audiences and you could go and see him and you could walk up to the stage and all he ever did uh, when he gave you um, a pri private conference was he would hand a piece of paper out and all that was on the piece of paper was the same uh, words for every single person and all it said was let go, let go, let go and it was, he said it's the only advice anybody really needs and then there was a guy called there is a guy called Muji who was brought up in Brixton lives in Portugal now and he's he's one of my favorite people to listen to and you know I need my Muji like to every two or three days if I don't get the fix I, I get a bit wobbly and uh, he does a guided meditation and he talks about um leaving everything at the door just leave every all your opinions at the door all your regrets all your hopes all your aspirations all your ambition everything at the door even your family right and also yourself he said because the mistakes that we often make or one of the biggest mistakes we make is that we consider ourselves a vessel in which to hold things and i think that's maybe what you're talking that's to brilliant okay so you've got your muji and i listen to <laughs> a wonderful american monk who's very old now called Dajan sumedo and you can find him and I listen to him 
pretty much every morning because, as you say, it connects you to this thing that happened to me quite, like I said, it just happened one day. I woke up and thought, I don't care about my opinions or my personality or myself. Myself. What's that? I couldn't... I, I just didn't care about it anymore. I can't describe it any other way. And I thought, I wonder if that's... I thought it was something in something to do with... Do you know, I can't remember, actually. I can't remember. I had various theories about it. And then I started listening to it. He's, he's a Buddhist. He went... He was in the Navy uh, until he was about 22 and he had he had one of those kind of moments and then he went and studied with a, a, a Buddhist monk in Thailand called Ajahn Chah who sounded divine. And the reason why I like him is he's so funny. He's funny because some of these teachers are not funny and they're a bit heavy and they're a bit, sententious and a bit kind of oh god oh, shut up um and he's sounds like your guy he's just somebody who says let go just let go die die now get let all that stuff die away it's nothing it doesn't mean anything you are not important <laughs> you don't even really exist it's fine yeah so dying's easy Dying's, that's what I want. And I don't mean that, obviously, in the physical sense at the moment because that would be very damaging. But but you know what I mean. Ego death is what you want. Ego death. So, so there are two egos, though, and there's one that's really useful. So there's the false ego, which is the one that fucks you up, which is the one you're talking about. Yeah, shit FM is yeah. the other the other <laughs> way of putting it. Shit FM or the, the inner tyrant. You know, this friend of mine, Jess Butcher, who's a great writer, young writer, she coined that phrase. Shit FM. Shit FM. It's in your head all the time. We're all people. working for her. We're all looking for, for shit FM. Your users, your users, oh, you're fat. Oh, you're not going to do that are you oh god what a stupid thing to say oh you look at your face look at your face oh my god did you oh, you look awful plus you're a really bad person really a bad person selfish and and vain and 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 you know you think you're kind of a good person but you're not really that's shit fm yeah let's not do shit fm i mean but some people are actually doing shit fm for well, a living for a living and being paid for it yeah but, but are they happy <laughs> no. no, they're fucking not happy. They are not happy. They're not happy. But I anyway, hope... so shit FM, but go back to your false ego, which is the the shit FM. Yeah, and then the other one is so like so and I'm making all this up on the spot. So but you you waking up and going, you know, I don't care about these things anymore. Well, I do care about them, but I don't care about the fact that I care about them. And mm. as much as I can still care about them, but I don't have to be too serious about yeah. my own perspective on them. And what that is, what that what I'm hearing, by the way, and it's you know, it's only my take on it is the fact that, you know, that's from a position of strength and that's you getting becoming so strong and so happy with yourself and growing from the inside out that you, you sit, you, you've come to realise the, the sort of um, the, the, the monochrome-ness of, of this particular story that you've been telling yourself, your serious side or whatever it is. That's from a point of strength. From a point of weakness, that's you not be and it's not... It's not your point of view because it's not you because you're not feeling weak. But if you were, say, and you were in a different headspace and you're in a different workspace, a different home space, maybe, you know, abusing things that you shouldn't, then that would become a lack of strength, not being able to keep up your story. And that's when you have a breakdown. So you've, what you've done is you've had the healthy equivalent of a breakdown. And you've, you're so your story's 
it's not so much broke down around you. You've allowed it to sort of uh, vaporize, disappear. You go, mm. I, just, no, I just don't care about you anymore. You having no more of oxygen story. Mm. I think I think that's that's true, uh, but I think that you know when you have a proper breakdown, that's when you're identifying with you really are attaching and identifying to very particular kinds of human pain, aren't you? You can't can't detach from it. And it's interesting to have a little little exercises. I do this all the time with myself. I sort of test myself. Like, for instance, say, take desire. So I'll see something that I think I really want and then I go, what's that like? What's that like to really want that thing? And as soon as I ask that question, what is it like to really want that thing? I don't want it anymore. And then I feel something, I feel some real pain. I feel someone said something to me and I feel quite <laughs> resentful and, and I think, oh, that's not very bloody friendly. That's not very nice. And then I, again, I do the same thing. I say, that's an interesting feeling. Look at that feeling. What's that like? It's like that. And as soon as I do that, it, it, it floats off. It's really an interesting exercise. It doesn't mean to say that you don't come back to it because what this monk says, or what is said anyway in the Thai Buddhist tradition, is that thought proliferates. And I think that's so brilliant because thought is like, you know, those really fast cameras that when you've got a, a camera that's on a crystal that's growing and the crystal just just create, goes and goes and goes like with CGI, you know, with something that's, that's building and growing, but really fast and uncontrolled in an uncontrolled way. Um, that's, that's what thought does with me. When I sit down to meditate, I'll have a thought and it just goes... There's a million things that come out of it and it just goes on and on. It's so hard to, to stop your brain. It's so hard. And I think this patch of time, for me anyway, has all been about how do I stop this proliferating thought? Because it's just, it's just distracting me from breathing in and out. But it's, we all do it. Isn't it interesting, though, that this patch of time, I think some people have gone, oh, I've been a little bit distracted recently. <laughs> for the last... For the last... For the last all of my life. For the last life bit of my life. <laughs> when I was awake. Yeah. I think it's also, you know, Eckhart Tolle is my man. Oh, well, he's brilliant. Right. He's my man. Have you met him? No, I never have. I've read no, all he, stuff. He's my, he, he's it for me. So everybody else gets close to him and then they think they found the answer. Then they start. Even Muji could go a bit further um, and Sadhguru and people like that. But Eckhart Tolle is the man and he deals in stillness, mm. inner stillness, and then um, space, spatial awareness um, and spaciousness. And the spaciousness, I think, is really interesting. Yeah. Because, you know, he doesn't, but I do, but I nicked it from him. Describe it as like a shock absorber. And it's about... It's about extending the shock absorber so as, as, you, as your car hits the bumps in the road, there's enough play yes. to not, for, the, for the chassis not to feel the, the bump. And therefore, if you can sort of apply that to your own sort of, um, I don't know, your, 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 the, the sort of exclusion zone around yourself, yes. you have the choice to, to not react. Well, you don't react because you don't have to react because it's not hit you. So you have the choice to respond and how you want to respond, you have the time and the thoughtfulness 
or the, the, the choice of thoughtfulness to do that, or you have the choice not to respond at all mm. and just st- take a step back or like, like a sort of martial arts guy, you know, yeah. just like get out of the way. If they want to go and punch me, well, they can go and punch the person or the country or the continent or the universe behind me. And it's that kind of thing. That, That's it. Yeah, and, and, you know, the thing about, you know, you have this thought and then thoughts proliferate because there's thoughts, isn't there? And then there's the mind, but then there's the inner voice. Yes. And when the inner voice speaks, that's really cool. Yes. When the voice in your head take over, they go, oh, yeah, we know what you mean. We, we, got, we got it. We got it for you now. And then they go and race up. And then you go back to the looping thoughts. Now, you've talked about looping thoughts ye- years and years ago, haven't you? You've, you've had the looping thoughts before. Yeah, probably. I can't remember. Now, you, talk, you talked about them. Um, well, forgive me. I think you talked about them, you know, um, in the 90s, you know, mid-30s, when all, you know, when you yeah. were in a different place to how, how, where you are yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, and is, is that where this journey began? For you? By the way, I didn't intend to talk about any of this. I, my opening question was going to be, what's it like to have a sleepover at Barbara Streisand's? But we'll get onto that in a minute. <laughs> you are allowed to laugh. It's nearly your 40th birthday. <laughs> By the way, Emma, Dame Emma might sing happy birthday to you in a minute. She might not. You might hate it. I would. I could sing in wing... <laughs> Wind when, beneath my wings, if you're not careful. When did you first? When did you? And we'll get. We'll move off this in a, in a minute for the sake of everyone and ourselves. But it's interesting up to this point. It could be further. But when did you first start to delve into this? How old were you? What happened? Um. Well, I mean, I'd always, always done yoga. Always done all that sort of breath, living on with breath stuff. Sorry to interrupt. You've not always done yoga. Since I was 16. Exactly. So the first yoga class, why, where? Uh, the Sobel Sports Centre in um, at, at Finsbury Park after school at Camden School for Girls with my best mate, Jack, Jackie, um, who's now an educa- educational psychologist in Durham. Um, and we went to to this great yoga class with this rather serious bloke and we got there and our maths teacher was there and we all did a one of those shoulder stands and we came came down off the shoulder stands as and as yoga practitioners will know this often involves if you're a woman air escaping out of your front bum and making a <laughs> fart noise that is not in fact a fart but sounds like one um and it's just yeah so our maths teacher did this fanny fart and of course that was it for us that was the whole lesson was over we couldn't we couldn't we struggled even to breathe just to stay alive because we were laughing so much so and that anyway but it, you know it got better after that okay so that was mid 70s so you're quite early on yes. the bus for the yoga i was early on the bus with the yoga i used to do it at night in my room every night and it was incredibly helpful to me and you've done it ever since no, no, there have been long periods when I haven't done it, but I've always moved my body about. Right, so, so the re-engagement with the, the mindfulness that we're talking about then? Yes, that's different, that's different. And the kind of mindfulness that we've been talking about endlessly and possibly boringly um, is late onset, absolutely turning 60 and going... All oh, right, so really oh, yeah, recent. No proper. Whoa. Even though I had read things like zen in the art of motorcycle yeah. maintenance um the road less traveled yeah. all that all stuff, stuff all good stuff in my 30s yeah. 40s etc but reading it is entirely different to practicing it every day which is why it's called the practice because exactly. if you do it for like 35 years every day every year and then you miss a day you forget it don't you, you that's the maddest thing don't you think it is and that's 
That's it is absolutely right. It's got to be a practice every day. So what is it like? Having a sleepover at Barbara Streisand's. I didn't sleep over. I didn't sleep over. I was there for dinner with Rafe Fines. Um and it was her house was just extraordinary because every room had been done in um in a different style and obviously very expensively. So I'm going to each room and thinking I could literally buy a house, a whole house, with what's in this room. Um but more alarmingly or perhaps even interestingly i had to cook over the road opposite i had to cook a meal for her and robert de niro on the same night so they came over for dinner on the same night and um i just got got i thought i'd got everything all sorted and i I was having a shower and i came downstairs and i was married to ken at the time because he was doing frankenstein with um, bob and um and I had my hair in a towel and I was still, I was running around. And then there was this doorbell thing and I opened the door and Barbara was getting out of the car. And she said, is that a towel you have on your head? I said, yeah. Um, uh, and she arrived and I realised I hadn't put the fucking dinner in the oven. I hadn't put it into the oven. So I had to put, I suddenly thought, Jesus Christ. <gasps> Hello, Barbara. <laughs> Would you like a glass of... <laughs> and I put the dinner in the oven, of course. By the time Bob had got here with his entourage, it was Barbara was on her own. Um, Ken and I were both absolutely plastered, and then Bob got a he got a, a cigar out and started to smoke it. And Barbara was sitting next to me. She said, "See, is, is he going to smoke that in here?" I, and I thought, "What am I going to do? What am I going to say? I can't say." Robert, could you turn your cigar out because Barbara's not having it? Um, uh, and I just remember being so. So drunk by the end of the night, I I think I passed out on the sofa by the time they'd they'd both gone. I, all I can say is never have two legends over on the same night. Just don't. For anybody listening, just bear that in mind. <laughs> so that's the thing. What that's a strange one, isn't it? When you start, when you think, when you think, if you're the one holding the dinner party, it's a good idea to start drinking early. That's just such a no, don't ever. That's such a schoolgirl, schoolboy error, isn't it? Yeah, that's And you really, start to sweat yeah, in your mouth. The more you drink, the drier your mouth gets. What's the fuck's that about? No, it's just not good. No. Um, so, so how long was the dinner? I don't know. I've got no idea. I was scooping. <laughs> I was pissed before it started. I've got no idea. Oh, the hangover took, was about two weeks long. And when, you, sure. when you're around such legends, and you, you can hold your own, um, you know, mm. in a storytelling competition, but, you know... Do you choose your moment? Does it come naturally to you? By the time you were doing that, you and Ken, you, you you're having this dinner party with Bob and Babs. Um, was it all? Was it all quite? Was it the new normal? No, not at all. Never was normal. It's never been normal. I've never found it normal. Any of it. I mean, perhaps that's a good thing. You know, but I mean, it's still not normal. So I don't. I don't um, don't really live in that world. I think you have to really have kind of grown up there in some way. Los Angeles in particular, that's a whole other thing. And I didn't even get visit Los Angeles till I was 30. You know, I was... And I was like a sort of geography teacher, really. <laughs> Let loose amongst these... What do you mean by that? Well, I was just sort of very, you know, kind of blue-stocking book reading person who felt rather plain and not at all 
um, able to to inhabit the kinds of personality that you know I was surrounded by. So it was very, it was a very strange. And I mean, I enjoyed it very much, but I was very much an outsider. Or I felt myself to be. I think you've just explained why I I, I love you actually, because you've described yourself there because. You, you, one could have presumed the next thing you're going to say is, and you know, I find it also uncomfortable because I was so different. But the great thing I think about you, without blowing smoke up where the sun don't shine, is the fact that you felt you felt like I don't fit in here, but that you don't. Have, there's no discomfort in that as long as you just accept it, yeah. and then embrace it, and then everybody's having more fun because of it. Yes, that's very true. I've always been, always enjoyed being a visitor there, and everyone was, has always been so lovely. When you're talking about cooking, when you're on Desert Island Disc, I mean, this whole conversation could just be us talking about what you told Kirsty in 2010 as you turned 50 and what we're talking about now 10 years later. Because, of course, when you turned 50, you'd been married for 15 years. You know, you were where you were in your career. You'd done lots of amazing things. You'd had bumps in the road, a bit of turbulence, a bit of growth, come out the other side. And, you know, when you're 50, you think, yeah, yeah, this is, you know, this is where we, I'm the I'm now the founding father or mother of my own future. And I, I sort of know it all. And it's plain sailing from here on in. Obviously, it's not right. We'll get to that in a minute. But, but so you're cooking on that night reminds me of the luxury that you asked for on the desert island, which was the cooking pot uh, with the uh, removable handle. Yes. <laughs> so you like to cook. then? Do you know, I, I, I loved cooking then and I, I enjoy it much less now. Don't know. Don't know why. My daughter has taken over. You're just losing interest in everything. I'm just, yes, I'm literally. I've just got no cooking. No, no. opinions. No, don't want to no, cook. No, I don't want to cook. Yeah. No, not interested. No. Um, I I do love. I do love it, but I don't do it as much as I did. Right. Um, because the other thing that um, piqued my uh, listening, the cycling through Regent's Park, was. When Kirsty says, "Well, you know, you get the complete works of Shakespeare and you get the Bible," uh, and but of course, as an atheist, you know, we we don't want the Bible, do we? I don't. Some of it's very well written. So you didn't. You see, you wouldn't mind having. There's it a there. James Bible, very yeah. well written. Remember what Jeanette Winterson said. No. She wrote. She wrote. Oranges are not the only fruit. Having only read the Bible, right. and maybe I think she was allowed Jane Austen. She said, "That's why I know how to write because the King James Bible is beautifully written." And so there are some good yarns in it as well. And there's some good stories some if you get through all the lists well. of and there's some good wisdom in it. I mean it's a it's a good book and I would read it with interest, right. I think. Okay, but if you had to, if it had a fight, if if you had the Bible in the blue corner and Homer's Odyssey in the red corner, who would you want to win? That's a really interesting question, actually. Which, by the way, for people listening, is the is the book you chose. Mm. In Greek with a Greek dictionary, so I could really pretty high bar. Yeah, so I could because I thought, well, I thought if I'm going to be there a long time, I'm going to need something to really no one to cook for. No one to cook for. Well, me, I think I'd get very interested in cooking with very limited ingredients. I think that's interesting. Do you know why I think one of the reasons why I think I've slightly gone off? Because when I go shopping, I just get confused by all the choice. I think this it's just too much choice. I go to the veg section and think, oh, what the fuck's that? I should cook that. I've never cooked that before. I should cook that. And then I get that. And then it doesn't match with, you know, sausages. And I, I just get, I get, I get overwhelmed by what's available. I think it's insane. 
actually. Well, it's it's what was wrong with Blockbuster when they opened. Yes. You used absolutely. to go down there. You spent yeah. so much, so much, so long trying to pick a film. A, you'd run out of time, but you could give Can't a fuck pick a anymore. Genre, <laughs> just pick a genre, yeah. even. Well, that's that's why when you know when these sort of um, these these dark arts uh, web platforms offer stuff up to you, I don't really mind. I know they might be pushing me towards something I don't want to buy, but mm. they're doing you a favour, aren't they? Well, I take no notice anyway. I put a thing up when I get those things that come up on the side. No, not adverts. I'm on about for movies. So you watch one movie, they, they offer you oh, some more yes, movies. Oh, yes, and they offer... No, I think that's quite helpful. That's all right, isn't it? We'll take that, won't we? It's, well, it's quite helpful because they think, well, you're interested in this, you might like this film. And I thought, oh, I've forgotten about that film. That's a good idea. I'll take it. <laughs> Meanwhile, your algorithm, the other you, which is being developed in Google land by evil rot bots, um, <laughs> puts a big tick on the people who sold them the film and the advert for the Oh, well, yes, I've seen The Social Dilemma. Watch it, everybody. It's very, very good. It is. What do you think about that, by the way? It's very good. A uh, lady came on this morning. She's written a book about AI for girls. Mm. Um, and she said the only thing wrong with it, uh, not enough people of colour and not enough women in that film. And I thought, bloody hell, of course. She's... Well, because there are no people no. of colour or women in Silicon Valley. I know. That's so, the so, point. Well, a whole a chapter in her book um, is about gender, uh, gender data. Which is as as big a problem as every other gender issue. Oh yeah, and it's it's what I mean. The stories from Silicon Valley are absolutely unbelievable. I mean, the sex parties. Have you heard about those? No. So, in Silicon Valley, everyone's very kind of loose and cool. And when you arrive and you're a woman, you're expected this to take part in the sort of loose, cool atmosphere and everybody then, oh, and suddenly it turns into the sex party that if you don't take part in, you're not loose and cool and part of the thing. And if you don't take part in it, then you don't get the... I mean, it's actually the casting couch exists in Silicon Valley as we speak because it's geeks. It's geeks who never thought they would get the girl and and suddenly they're so powerful and and they're all white and they're all male. Because you've had... I mean, you've talked about... Well, very openly about the John Lasseter issue, haven't you? Mm. Which we can talk about now. We, we don't have to talk about that. Yeah, whatever you want. So just just for people who don't know about what we're talking about, speak to that for a second. Um, well, it was just after the Me Too movement had really started and um, uh, I was about to start on doing a voice on an animated movie with a wonderful director and I can't remember any names of anything, so don't even... because. I'm not prepped for that, so I can't remember. And like I say, I forget a lot. You don't care anymore. And it's past. But um, this studio had just appointed John Lasseter, who was clearly somebody who had a great difficulty controlling his behaviour towards women. Um, and I just thought, isn't there a point at which if you're an organisation with a great deal of money and and choice about who you wished at your helm, is there not a point at which you say, do you know what, that person, good though they are, has this reputation, it's, it's not the moment to take that person. He says he wants to change. Perhaps we should leave him to do that for a few years. And then we could talk to him about things. John Lasseter may wish to change his behaviour. I'm, I, I haven't seen him, so I don't know. But... Um, it was literally there was a town hall where they call those yeah, they call those things town halls where everybody goes in and they, and they were all saying well he he he's anything you wish to say what anything you wish to say about your boss and the company you work for in this open environment that's 
nobody's going to say anything because this is all about power. So just choose someone who you know is not going to behave like that. It's not rocket science. It's just human resources. It was so stupid and and also insensitive and almost like an absolute smack, a backhander to all of those women who'd been brave enough to come out and say, you know, we felt me up with the lift or but all of this casual stuff that Laura Bates has written so brilliantly about and has again brought out a new book about misogyny on the web, on the dark web, which is <laughs> terrifying. I, I just thought, no, I can't. I can't work for this company because they're not listening and they're not reading the room. And at some point or other, you've just got to say no. And then you hear from people who are working in areas that aren't as spotlit who feel you know, vindicated and feel stronger and better for it. So it's a good move to make to stand up to things even if it means you walking away from a project that you love. When did you first start standing up to things and what was the first thing you were active about? Feminism. When I was 19, I first read an extraordinary feminist literary criticism, book of literary criticism. It's called The Mad Woman in the Attic and it's, it's Gilbert and Gubar is the, are the names of the authors, two women. And... I'd been reading a lot of 19th century Victorian literature, which I loved. I've always loved Jane Austen, George Eliot, you know, just loved them and um, the Brontes, etc. And I was suddenly introduced to a whole other way of thinking about these books. And I realised that all the white male critics that I'd been reading weren't necessarily right or even... <laughs> understanding of what these women were writing and that was a complete revelation to me and as I got into that and then started to read about about women about about the history of women which there isn't any obviously because we've been ignored but um I just started to get so involved with it and so angry and also coming up against it myself a lot of course being a woman who wanted to be a comedian which was really hard and I was lucky I was a woman of white privilege I mean not privilege in the sense of an aristocratic family or anything not in any sense that but at least I was white that was a help um and <laughs> just I was so angry I remember being asked by um it was a bloke who was running the National Theatre at the time. And he was all dressed in black with a black polo neck and his office was painted black and his desk was black and everything. He just looked like a head floating in the office because everything around him was black. And um, it was a gag, really. And um, he said, why haven't you come to us to be directed? I've never forgotten that. I said, because I didn't want any fucking men telling me what to do. It came out of me like a sort of arrow from my heart. And he said, oh, okay. <laughs> and I never went. All right then. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. Yeah. I never went. And I found a lot of the... I mean, there were some extraordinarily wonderful men at that time. It was Humphrey Barclay, who has done so much for comedy of 
colour, anyone of colour in comedy owes Humphrey a lot because he was one of the first people ever to put on any comedy series that were even about black lives in Britain, you know. And he also um, really uh, championed women as well. Me too. And I owe him a lot. And I'd rather think about... I'd rather think about men like him than the obvious, really, because the obvious is still there. You can just walk out and you'll find it. You'll find it at the BBC still. You'll find it at, at radio everywhere. It's still all there. The And there it is, you know, white male privilege, which is, after all, just as niche as anything else, is still there. Very much so, and very much so in the arts. When you were at Cambridge Footlights, a couple of questions about that. So um, apparently Oxford has a similar thing, but nobody knows what it's called unless they've been a part of it. So it, the Footlights, which is legendary, can that be the difference between somebody having the choice, who has the choice, going to Cambridge over Oxford? Is it that much of a sway, of a swing? Well, it was irrelevant to me. Right. Because I was at a school where nobody went to Oxford or Cambridge. Right. So it was just... A, it was sheer bloody luck how did that happen so i don't know well we had to stay on for an extra it must have been just an extra term to take the exam to learn how to take the exam so there are only a handful of us mm. i think maybe three or four of us got in but none of the teachers had been so they they had no we, we didn't know how to deal with it so I, I just went to look at oxford and i thought well that's really pretty i like the gardens at brazeners which had just gone co-ed uh, literally just gone. It was, a, it was a rowing college. So it was a really stupid college to 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 ask to go to because the dons were still hugging the walls as women came past. You know, it was just, oh, Christ, it's one of those things, leaking things. Um, and it's, the opposite, it's the reverse of what you're just talking about. It's leaking. <laughs> just so weird, isn't it? I know. And and so, yeah, these these I went and saw these two blokes who were doing an interview with me they said well we've only seen you because your french practical criticism paper was very good and i said oh okay would you be interested in doing um amateur dramatics or dramatics of any kind i said oh yes yes i would i said enthusiastically and i could see the faces just going oh just clearly just we've got this bint get rid of her as soon as possible one of them was wearing a lemon suit though why why was he in a lemon suit I why not just, why not well it was weird yeah, it was quite weird. It was ill-advised, that's for sure. Uh, anyway, so so then I did another exam for Cambridge and I went to Newnham and I, w I had these fun interviews with these amazing, amazing tutors, Jean Gooder and Sita Narasim, and she had about nine degrees, Sita, and one of them was in maths. It was these brilliant, brilliant women who actually w appeared to be interested in what I had to say. And it was... Um, does that feel my connection? Oh, well, I, I mean, it certainly is that, but it's more than that. It's just not assuming that you're going to be dull or not actually being a misogynist yeah. and not liking women, fearing them and hating them right. and being angry about the fact that they were coming into this all-male environment. I mean, you know, Oxbridge was still very male. Yeah. Um, and that's changed a lot, I think. So, so in the footlights, you you trailblazed there as well because you were the first female 
vice president, president? Yeah, I was vice president. Jan Ravens was president for a bit. Right. Um, um, I was vice president, I think, oh, when no, you Hugh the... was president. Sorry, you were the first female to be um, welcomed into the sketch, comedy sketch side of things. No, they, no. I mean, I think, I think they'd had women, well... The first time the Footlights had women was in something like 1927 right. when there were only about three girls at Cambridge. Anyway, I don't know what happened there. But anyway, the following year, the review was called No More Women. Because as Sandy Toxvig and I discovered, because we did the first all-female review called Woman's Hour there, um, actually it was very very hard to find a woman who was funny. It wasn't... It was hard to find at Cambridge. You know, think of the effort that women had to make just to get to Cambridge in the first place. Yeah. You know, I mean, massive, yeah. massive. So it, it's not going to, it wasn't going to draw the kind of, the jokers. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't going to draw the the people attracted to the lighter side of life. You know, I mean, my, my corridor was just natural historians who all, it was like, it was like living in a sort of burrow um, with little kind of rodenty people who had little, I mean, I don't mean to look at, but just their habits. And um, uh, and they all had little fluffy slippers, I remember. And I was the only one who had a fella uh, come to visit and Hugh would come to visit and you'd hear the, the sound of the doors slamming on the corridor like bullet shots as soon as this massive rower turned up on the corridor. They've demolished that building now, sadly. Otherwise, I could show you. You forget he was a rower, strapping young man. Yeah, he that was his thing. He got into, oh God, I can't remember his college, Selwyn. Um, and he was he was a rowing blue, an athlete. You know, extraordinary. But, I mean, for the, you know, in their defence, not that they need to be defended, but the historians, um, the students of history, that was their joy, wasn't it? So they didn't feel like so they exactly. needed the comedy. So. No. It's about joy, isn't it? Yeah, what do you want? I mean, good grief. It, it, exactly. I discovered comedy, or my love of performing comedy, when I was very, very young, um, way before university. I, was, I, I used to do these funny little acting classes with um, um, oh, a wonderful woman called Sheila Sachs, who's dead now, but she did these classes for kids in her front room. And I was quite shy and I'd been a bit bullied at primary school because I had a posh accent and a plat and I was fat. Anyway, um, I went to Sheila's classes and she just did these amazing exercises. And I loved it, I absolutely loved it. And she put on a show every year. And one year I got to do a monologue by the jazz musician George Melly. And it was about how... It was based on Lenny Bruce's How to Relax Your Coloured Friends at Parties. And it was about a woman who's absolutely over the moon because there's a black man at her party. And it's about a Hampstead hostess. Who's, who's, can you imagine? I was 13, I think, 13 years old. And what the, But the thing was, I knew it was, it was a great piece of writing and we did versions of that for years afterwards. I remember Jan doing it. I mean, you forget, you forget how written into our culture was misogyny and racism. I mean, it was just part of the world in such a sort of normal way. And Melly'd seen it and obviously Lenny Bruce was a bit genius on that score. But I remember the feeling of making people laugh. And it was just, it was just such a buzz. So there are people that, 
that laugh. They're fans of comedy. I've got a couple, a couple friend of us as a couple. They just fucking love comedy. You know, they just laugh all the time. They watch it on the telly. They go to comedy clubs. And I love to laugh, you know. Um, but th it's sort of what they do, really. I mean, they're, they're, they have children and they've got jobs, but they mostly laugh. And it's wonderful to be around, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Um, and it's infectious. Are you a laugher, you know, or when you... Because a lot of a lot of people, a lot of people, you know, comedy is a serious business and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and you meet a lot of comedians or comic actors or, or comic writers. And you know, I'm not saying they're serious, but they're not a laugh a minute. You know, they're wonderful company. Don't get me wrong. You know, but at the age of 13, when you heard that laughter, you know, were you were you one who wanted to make people laugh more than you wanted to be made to laugh, or is that does do we not even have to have that conversation? Well, I'm. I'm not sure because I was brought up basically by Monty Python. So I spent my entire school years laughing at Monty Python. When, I, when there, The show was on Thursday nights and we would watch the show, me and my best mate, and then we would talk about it for the rest of the week and we would get under the stairs at school and we would read um, excerpts from the Little Red Book, um, which of course was large and blue, um, under the stairs and then not be able to speak because we were laughing so much. So... I laughed and laughed and laughed at that yes. when I was young. I mean, yes. that was everything to me. I think, I'm, but I didn't find a lot, a lot of comedy I didn't find funny at all. I loved Morecambe and Wise, but wasn't, was very disturbed by Benny Hill. Um, but there were bits that I, I think of the things that we used to watch. Dick Emery. Oh, you are awful, but I like you. I mean, dressed as a woman and pushing a policeman over. <laughs> These were the things that made us laugh when we were little. And the, so Python, of course, of course, no no people of colour and no women at all. So completely conditioned I was by white, male, middle-class, clever, funny, often cruel men. Yeah. And um, so I loved laughing at that. Yeah. Making people laugh a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't laugh easily. I don't laugh easily at all. The last time I really, really lost it, I mean, and we, was when my best, oldest friend, who's Scottish and a, a man, um, had a frozen kipper fight with my husband. They frozen fought, kipper fight? They fought each other with a pair of frozen kippers for the, from the freezer. Oh, tell me about the context. <laughs> it just happened to be, I think, I think my best mate, who's very good friends it with It wasn't my a Monday man, morning, was it? No, it was night. It was a night time, and drink had been taken. That's what I'm saying. Um, and uh, although, yeah, you're not going to have that sort of laugh on a Monday morning, are you? Anyway, <laughs> you know, with the sound of Britons getting up and just groaning, it's a kind of general. Uh, Monday morning. How did it come about? Because I think my 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 oldest friend, who's really good friends with my husband, <laughs> was it was in Scotland? It was in Scotland. Something insulting. No, it was here. It was over the road. Right. Said something insulting to my husband, who then went to the freezer, extracted a frozen kipper, right, and hit him with it. Oh, hang on. So it wasn't a frozen kipper fight. It was a frozen kipper assault. Yeah, it was basically GBH. They both and have to have one for it to be a fight. They have no, 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 no. Then, then my friend went and got another oh, kipper. It was like a pillow fight, but it with was. Kippers. It was, but it was a Frozen bit like ones. that fish fight, which that fantastic sketch where Michael Palin hits Terry Jones off the edge of a pier with a gigantic haddock. Yeah. Look, these are the things that make me laugh. No, I agree with you. I'm I agree. Sorry, with you. they're naughty, they're uncomfortable. Yeah, um, they're daring. They they would they wouldn't happen in a, a usual domestic or you know uh, 
normal workplace. But you'd it's a bit Larry David in a way. It's what you would, might want to do but never do. Yes, but that's quite... I think that's quite grown up and adult. They, they're principally intensely silly. And I think silliness is something that's so important in life and so easy to let... We forget, we forget the importance of silliness. When Mike Nichols directed um, Spamalot... He said that I just needed to do something that was genuinely silly. And it, it's, it's vital. It's those silly things. That's what really gets me. Not puerile. Then you go. Oh, yeah. Um, and jokes, I find, are, I mean, basically terribly upsetting because you're expected to laugh at the punchline. It's too... It's, yeah. They're... they're they're too demanding, really. They're quite claustrophobic as well, aren't they? They're claustrophobic because they're sort of an enclosed thing, whereas silliness they're can... Quite com- they're quite controlling. They are. They're very controlling. Um, the thing about silliness is interesting because kids are great at being silly. Mm. And then some adults or some grown-ups are good at being silly. But silly, silly again, requires space. You know, and kids kids have got loads of space. Well, they haven't got as much space as they used to have, not back in our day. No. But, uh, but they've still got much more space than any grown-up. Yes. And so they've got... They, they they can afford to be silly. They've got the luxury to be silly. Yes. And my favourite quote about or thoughts or take on comedy is it's intelligence at play, you know. And again, so you have to have the extra capacity, you know. You have to you have to have the budget almost. Mm. You have to have the environment. You mm. have to have the time, mm. and you have to have the wherewithal and the presence to be silly. Yeah, it's a luxury, isn't it? Which is a shame. Yeah, and I think that's why we'd like to have a glass of wine at night because you know. Everything else falls away, and you know. This is, but there's a window, isn't there? Uh, we have a drinking window for silly. It's for when I'm on drinking pints. It's between two and five. Yes. You know, so it takes two to begin to get silly. Yes. Then after five, you think you're being silly, but you're just being a pain in the arse. <laughs> you know, and that gets shorter. Things to do with the enzymes <laughs> really in your does. tummy. You could, you could. How are you with that? I am. Um, I. I. Uh, no. I can't. <laughs> I. I. No. No. Me, no. 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 Well, I mean, lockdown. Bloody hell. What would they say? They said you're either a hunk, a drunk, a monk. What was it? Hunk, because you've just been at the gym all the time. Yep. Lunk, because you've been eating all the time. Yep. Lump, drunk, and monk. Yeah. So I was a drunk monk. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think you end up being all four eventually if we stay locked down for long enough. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. You can't. There's some are mutually exclusive, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I have not had a night off the booze since lockdown started. Including last night? Including last night, yeah. But, I mean, when I say on the booze, no, I, I mean... I know what you mean, I know what A drink. Mean. It's okay. No, it's okay. Um, <laughs> I'm anxious now. By the way, what time is it? <laughs> Never too early. <laughs> do, you, do, you have, uh, do you have any rules? Mm, not really. I mean, look, my rule is if you drink too much, you feel terrible the next day. Yeah. Which isn't a rule, it's just an observation. So it just means that you think to yourself, okay, it's if you a can choice now. that. It's a choice now. Yeah. yeah. So again, it's like I say, you see something, you desire it, and you go, hmm, that's interesting. Look at that desire. Look at me desiring that third glass of wine. You know what? Maybe I won't. Yeah. I mean, because I get up at silly o'clock, it's different kettle of fish to me. Oh, no, you can't. I mean, if I, get, I have to get up early, I can't drink. You just won't do it. Before. Do you have reels for when you're working? Yeah, yeah. I don't drink. Zero. Zero. So for how many days before a shoot or before a job? 
would you would you sort of go into that what would you call it decompression period or transformation period transition period it depends it depends on the physical nature of the work right if it's a very physical job then you you know just sort of get to get fit basically yeah and that feels good yeah yeah i love that any tips for people listening about about that any sort of regime takeaways well, the thing is that the tip is to have purpose and I, I'm very lucky because if I'm doing that, there's a purpose for it. I'm going to be doing something for which I'm going to get paid. Yeah. You know, so, so you can give tips all you like. Um, you see all those bloody endless diets by celebrities, you know. But they're paid great sums of money. So, of course, part of the regime is keeping fit, but it, it doesn't cost them. They're, they've got trainers and and assets and chefs. it's chefs <laughs> and people exactly yeah. no seriously i mean they really do so um no i think that would be and as well you know you give a few tips and you go but, but but why am i doing it i'm doing it absolutely for a very very specific reason yeah and i'm really lucky to have that reason because that's my motivation and if you haven't got motivation and you've got three kids running up around the house and you're a single parent and yeah. you've just been, you know, then they're just going to say, shove your tips up your ass. But is there any, but okay, we'll take that on board as well. But mm. is there anything, is there anything you could say to everyone? Do you, do you have a, you know, I think breathing's free. Breathing. Well, yeah. I mean, breathing is the best possible thing to learn how properly to do and it's so odd because we obviously have to breathe otherwise we die but um but what's so interesting about it is how powerful it is as a tool in your life i would absolutely say put that at the top of your list everybody well i was go i'd go sleep if you can proper sleep um proper sleep then what would be the next thing it'd probably be your diet would be next well breathing would be probably breathing first yeah, breathing because first. then you'll sleep better you can, and you can get to sleep as well yeah yeah no breathing sleep, first sleep breathing sleeping diet diet movement if you can afford you know decent food that's great because cheap food's three times cheaper yeah and three times and worse bad. for you yeah really bad for you no, well there are these um these uh uh, food deserts aren't there now but the yes. food deserts are within housing Absolutely. estates because yes. there are places to eat but there's no nutrition nutritional Nothing value in the all. food none at all and they can't you... get to places yeah. where there's decent food I and mean, we have presided over that in this country yeah but anyway no but processed food the soft food in your mouth you know about this our mouths are getting smaller because you don't have to chew as much Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and if your mouth gets smaller then your breathing becomes restricted and that blah blah blah, blah, blah. No, 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 all no. that kind of stuff we are going to end up like those little things in Wall-E, aren't we? Yeah. All we do is lie on sun loungers and suck things through a straw. Yeah. Or it be, be, or become orange. Oh, God. <laughs> You're my second dame in a week. Um, uh, I'd like to go for six more, then we could we could re-record. Eight dames a week. But that's not oh, going to happen. Sorry. Really good. It could. No, it's terrible. But um, <laughs> by the way, whenever, whenever I'm around here, right, I always want to put on abbey road just yeah. the whole album just because you're near there yeah that's but i didn't that's nothing to do that i'm gonna ask you next um the last dame i talked to in my two dame thus far can always be better week was dame 
Judy Dench. And she was awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Right. Uh, a couple of things about Dame Judy to, to ask to you. The first thing is I said to her, you know, how, how do you act? And she said, I have no idea. Totally ditto. Oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> no, I've got no idea. I've got no idea. She's absolutely right. And she doesn't even read things before she starts them. I know. It's fantastic. She doesn't bother with that. She's so great, dude. She's so great. But you so must have a you. process. I mean, in the end, to be honest, I mined a process out of it. She didn't know I was doing it. And I said, there you go, that's how you do it. She went, oh, yeah, maybe yeah, that's Yeah, yeah, no, I, I do absolutely have a process. And here it is. I, um, I learn it. I learn the fuck out of it a long time before I do it so I can forget it. And then you come back to it and it's in there somewhere and then you just kind of dust it off and it's in there but it's in there a completely different way it's so interesting if you have to learn something like the night before because they've changed a scene and you learn it it's a it's in a completely different part of your brain to the one that you've learned six months previously or whenever you've been able to get the script get hold of the script two months previously say and you've learned that and it's in your brain somewhere else you know the computer's filed it somewhere and it's just incomparable. And the way in which it comes out is different as well. Some actors like to do that. They prefer to get the line 10 minutes before and then say it because they say it's more um, spontaneous. Energy and different energy. Yeah. And perhaps that's true, but the energy that is in it for me is panic, which I don't find comfortable. I don't want to feel panicky when I'm acting. I just don't want to think about it. I don't want to think I'm I'm panicked because I don't know these lines. I just don't want to think about it at all because it's not a thinking thing. You need to do all your thinking beforehand. So I do a lot of thinking and pre I'll read all around the period. I'll do loads and loads of prep of that kind, which I really love doing. And then you get you mean, it means you get to learn so much as well. Well, I love the two extremes because I think they both work. Again, I'm just a viewer. But I love the, the 10 minutes before and the danger of that mm. because that's compelling. Mm. And I love the depth of how you do it. Mm. You know, when you inhabit your characters, you know, I, I, I'm so, I'm so, you've done all the heavy lifting for us, you know, as somebody who's watching what you're doing. And I, I know that you, you are, you've done all the work with that character. And I feel like, you know, you don't even have to say anything. It's the look in your eye. It's the cock of your head. It's the, oh, gosh, she knows who this is. Mm. Whoever this is, whoever whoever she's telling us this is, that's who this is. And I love that. So thank you very much. Okay. Um, and then I was going to talk about her awards, right? Because oh. we had this little game on the radio today. And it's not a game. It's just a game. It's a stupid game. It's silly. Good. Hopefully it's not puerile. No, okay. But, but it might be, right? <laughs> so here we go. Oh, God, I can't believe I'm doing this in your living room. Um, so you have two Academy Awards. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. You also have two BAFTAs. Three. Three BAFTAs. Yeah. Could change things, actually. Could change things. Sorry, I thought it was two. She has Dame Judy of the Denchmeister. She has just the one Academy Award. And about 15 BAFTAs. 11. 11, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. So in a fight, we ask the listeners, in a fight, who wins? Well, she wins. <laughs> and I said you'd say this. Obviously. Because? 
Well, it's just because she's Dame Judy. That's what I said you say. That's what I said. I said on the radio. I said she'll say because she's literally word for word is what I said. That's what I said. I'm See, so pleased. I'm you're, so pleased. you're a very perspicacious man, Mr. Evans. I, well, she, I wish I knew what it meant. Yes, you do. You know very well what it meant. Oh, God. She's fantastic, isn't she? And also, I'll tell you what, she because she, she's a Quaker. Yes, indeed. And indeed. that's absolutely, if I were to choose any kind of Christian version, it would be that. Because it's about shutting up. I mean, I know we're not shutting up at the moment because that's the idea of a podcast. But after this, I'm going to have to maintain a long silence. And that's, it's so lovely, that thing of going into a Quaker's meeting room and just sitting there. Yeah, and the Bible's there if you want it, but it's, you don't have to turn to it, apparently. There's a Bible on the desk, but you don't, nobody ever has to refer to the Bible, but you can if you want to. Yes. It's and you can speak if you want to. Have you been to meeting? They call it meeting, don't they? A meeting, yeah. You don't have to speak. So w when did you go? Oh, years ago, I went to the meeting house in Hampstead, a lovely meeting house in Hampstead that I suppose Judy must have gone to because she lived there for years and years. And why were you drawn to go? Well, because I was drawn to all manner of things, being young and curious and curious about spiritual aspect of life, but not not quite knowing, you know. I wanted to... I, I, when I was... Very young, about 16, I decided I wanted to become a Christian. I may have told this story before, but I went to talk to the vicar who lived next door in this street. And I was so interested in it. I, I, I thought, oh, it would be so comforting to have Jesus in my life and be my friend. And he's so great and he would have all the answers and I would be good. I would be really good if I had him in my life. I was convinced by it. And then I asked about my uncle, who was gay. I said, would he be allowed into heaven? And there was a pause, and that was enough. That pause said everything, because it said, well, my uncle, who was saintly, is going to be somehow... Ha you're going to have to think about it? Mm, that was it. Because today the Pope has come out today, hasn't he, and, and said that he's all, all for gay marriage. Got you know, fill your boots, get on with it. He's rather good, this Pope, isn't he? I think he's the best in our life. Well, definitely the best in our life. Maybe the best ever. I don't know. I'm not qualified to. Just guessing. No, I'm guessing too. But I mean, he does seem like a really good geezer. He is a good geezer. Um, you've said of the difference between acting and writing is that writing is you. You know, you really get off on your writing and you really enjoy acting. Isn't that lovely to have those two things in your life? Mm, I think I'm really, really lucky. Which is the t toughest? Writing. Acting's a joy. Acting's like... Acting's playing. It's playing. But that's SAS, isn't it? It's train hard, fight easy. So, you, so your writing is your hard thing and your, your acting is, is like your sort of... your treat, if you like. It's sort of like that. But do you think if acting was the only thing you did, there'd be more pressure on it and you might fall to bits a bit more, mm. fall apart a bit more? Yeah, definitely. And is it true that it took you seven years to write Sense and Sensibility? Oh, yeah. I mean, not obviously continuously. I think it was sort of five years door to door. But when my producer, Lindsay Duran, asked me to said, you know, do you, do you fancy... Do you fancy... Adapting Sense and Sensibility, and I didn't know how. And I asked Ruth Prabhupada who 
just adapted Howard's End and all that. And she said, well, adapt the whole thing and see which bits work. So the first script was about 300 pages long. So it was it, it was a, such a, a, a process to adapt that book. Really a long, long process. And that's something I would never have achieved without this incredible producer, Lindsay Duran. I mean, a great producer is also like a great editor in a in a publishing house. Yeah. You know, she she um, she won that award as much as I did. And again, for people listening, he'll he'll be hopefully downloading and listening to this to be inspired. You know, to be comforted, hopefully to be informed and maybe even instructed without being too sort of lofty about that. Um, the thing about the great story about sensibility is the fact that you got it off the back of something that was a clanging failure. Yeah, absolutely. Just just speak to that for a second. Will well, you? Um, I had before I started acting, I, I, I was wanting to be a comedian. I wanted to be Lily Tomlin, Joris Grenfell. I was a great admirer of Jane Wagner as a writer you know, um, Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe and Lily's kind of uh, wonderful monologues, male, playing all sorts of characters, male, female, like Tracy Ullman, all of that. I really found all of them so inspiring. So I was offered a... I, did, I wrote a little sketch show for Edinburgh Festival, 83, I think it was, and off the back of that, um, they offered me, I think it was the Beeb, um, a six half hours but before I got to them I did Tutti Frutti and the Fortunes of War and then I went uh, finished those jobs and and they were very successful and I won my first BAFTA for those two roles and after first that three first three, first three. and Apparently after that which is really a paltry number when one considers Dame Jude um anyway so so, so yes. I mean, she could build a fence with her BAFTAs. Anyway, um, so, so I, I went back to... I had a very, very good agent, actually. God love him. Because he was being asked by a lot of people to put me into films and to get me into the sort of... And he said to me, you're not doing that. You're going back to comedy because that's, what, that's your stuff. That's what you want to do. Now, that's a good agent, if any agents are listening. You know... You don't just sell your client to the highest bidder, um, which happens a lot, I'm afraid, especially with young people, and they get destroyed by that. Anyway, I didn't have that. I had someone who was wise enough to say, you must do your own thing, you must sit down and write. So I did, I said, and that was Humphrey Barclay, who, who produced the show and in whose offices I sat for eight months weeping, trying to write comedy, which is hell. And there's no other word for it. And I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and created six scripts. And, oh, God, then we went up to Manchester and we made them. And it was huge and massive. I had this fantastic cast. It was where I first worked with Imelda Staunton, whom I worshipped and adored and uh, still do. She's a neighbour, actually. Anyway, it was a lot. It was a lot. And we put it out and it got, I mean... They're all male critics, it has to be said, and it was very feminist. I mean, for instance, I was just remembering this morning, <laughs> talking about achievement and blokes and then not wanting women to ever achieve anything. 
Imelda and I are two medieval women in a hut. I'm I'm a medieval woman in a hut. I'm pounding something. Imelda runs in and says, you never guess what I've gone and done. I go, no, what's the matter? She says, I've only gone to split the atom. And my first, <laughs> and my first hut's a mess. I said, I said, it was my first line back to him. I said, well, you can't tell him. No, no, I can't tell him. I can't tell him. No, what are you going to do? It was all about a woman achieving something and not being able to tell her husband because he'd be so cross. That's hilarious. It is. It's very funny. Look, the, the series itself was not in any way as bad as they made out. It was a young woman writing to what she felt passionately about. I wrote about everything I could think of. Female orgasm, droit de seigneur, um, sexual harassment at home, you know, domestic violence, all of that. Okay, it doesn't sound like it's going to be funny, but a lot of it was very funny. Uh, And anyway, so it was shat on like massively and then they put it on in america but like at three o'clock in the morning i don't know my producer Lindsay, was watching it saw this sketch about a victorian mother whose daughter comes home and is telling her a story about her husband who's got this little creature attached to his between his legs and she doesn't know what it is and she needs help which in turn was based on a short story by edith wharton about the cruelty of arranged marriage anyway it's all kind of connects up in my mind, my the back passages, as it were, of my tired old brain. And Lindsay watched this sketch and thought, she's the woman I want to adapt Jane Austen. <laughs> and uh, she rang me and said, would you be interested in adapting this this novel? I said, well, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. But it was because of the greatest failure of my life as a writer that I got the greatest success of my life as a writer. And that's, you know, therein lies the lesson. You know, Therein lies the lesson. Well, what is the lesson? Let's Failure dis- is, it. is more important to you as a creative manure, as it were, than, than success. Se- success doesn't help. It just gives you perhaps another opportunity. Mm. But be sure, be sure to, to fail, because if you can't fail, you can't do anything. Yeah, no, I, a quote I heard last week was um, uh, from somebody who said you know i've learned so much from my mistakes it's about time i made i made a few more that's it i love that don't you it's brilliant and that means you've just got to be brave and and keep trying things yeah that you're not sure you can do yeah yeah that's all and stay engaged yeah and stay engaged and be curious because that will save you from everything it will save you from depression and burnout being curious so when you talk to kirsty in 2010 Mm. You're 50, just turned 50. 50, yeah. You roasted a pig to celebrate. (laughs) I was trying at the time to eat as many pigs as possible because I knew that once sometime during this last decade someone would prove that they were more intelligent than us. Um, And then you you said something else as well, and it was beautiful because she talked about Greg, your husband, Mm. and um, you said, oh, yeah, 15. Oh, it's been 15 years. And you said that when you were 50, and now I'm like, that means it's been 25. How is it? Great. Great. I mean, my mother once said, much to my amusement, she said, I think the first 20 years are the hardest. (laughs) And when people talk about long-term relationships, I do tend to repeat that and say, look, it's going to be up and down, okay? Unless you're like, People who, I mean, I've met people who've gone, I've been terribly happy for decades. And I go, oh, okay. But I don't believe them. I don't believe them. We've had periods of intense misery. But 
we are old now. No, you're not. You're older. Uh, yeah, no, I like to say old in a really positive way. No, it's just that it pisses older people off because you're not allowed to be old because they're old. Okay. And they, they want to own the old. Older. All right, fair enough. Sorry. No, no, fair enough. Okay, Jesus Christ. My mum would be How very... woke are you? Not... Irritatingly woke. <laughs> Sorry. You're even woke to the, to the older generation. Okay, so I'm not old in the sense that I'm not in my 80s. Yeah. But I am in my 60s, so I... Just only, only just. 61. Yeah, only just. Late 50s. Still. I fancy that it'll be a very interesting decade. Should I be spared? Might get the runner, you know. Yeah, well, Cark. also, you, you, you're you of an age now where you're in an official... I'm in the new official vulnerable you group. Are. How does it feel to be vulnerable on a different level? To, such to how a relief. It's such a relief. <laughs> God, and we've had to go around being copper-plated and, you know, Teflon-coated in order to survive our lives. Finally, we can just say, oh, do you know what? I think I'm just going to take a nap. I'm going to take a nap and then I might get up and I might have a cup of tea. Hannah Gadsby's very good on this. She, well, she, she says, I identify as tired. Who's, it, who's this? Hannah Gadsby. Right. <laughs> it's so funny because when I was in... We were, I was in Cap Ferrat a um, long, long time ago, when I was mental. Mm. And, um, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really, you know. No. But I was as well. Um, but then you get in certain places, you know, with certain people... And it's all all right again. And you sniff your better self or whatever phrase you want to say. Yeah. And um, we, it, was, it, was a, it was during the siesta and me and my girlfriend at the time, the amazing Susie Applin, um, we, we'd gone for a lunchtime drink, I think, when you still could because you were young enough and it didn't matter. And you could have, then have a little break in the afternoon and go again at night yes, time. Yes, that was always yes, fun. I remember those days. Yeah, I remember those. And they still, you know, apparently the young people still do it. And um, there was two American guys and they were, we were the only four people in the in the street, and there was two American guys, and they were having a drink. But they were they were in the I presume they were in their eighties. They seemed to be. Uh. And once I did the other one, they 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 had a beer each, and uh, and I'm going to make the names up now. But once he said, "Bo, yeah, Duke," he says, "Let's go buy a chicken." I said, "What the heck? Let's go buy two. And that was the only decision they had to make that day. And I thought, "Oh God." That's gonna be fun, you know. I sort of don't want to be there, but I sort of do. And that's where you're—that's the drawbridge you're at now, isn't it? Absolutely. Isn't it great? It's absolutely wonderful. I think we probably all do a whole lot too much. Probably. Yeah. And the, and the 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 more you slow down, the more attention you do things with. The more attention you do things, the longer they take. The more fulfilling they are. The less things you need to fill your day. Mundo. <laughs> so I've uh, uh, oh I did another experiment. Try this at home, listeners. Um, it's very good on the I radio. I was very very um, keen on you know like having a lunchtime or breakfast where you're not necessarily with family. So this is for folk who you know aren't doing that thing of feeding kids and all of that because that's a whole other thing. Then you just eat breakfast on the go, off the floor, um, but. I, I noticed that if I would like to read when I was eating and I made an experiment, which was I would take a mouthful of food, not read, look out of the window and eat the food and really, really be able to taste it. And I take another mouthful and I start reading and I couldn't taste the food anymore because I was doing 
two things at once that require, well, it might be a brain chemistry thing apart from anything else, but it was certainly absolutely clear. Try it, you know, a mouthful of cereal it's not going to taste the same if you, you're reading the back of the box at the same time. It's just not. And it, 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 that's fascinating to me because we're so used to doing, in this patch of the world, we're so used to doing so many things. Whereas I've learned a lot from, from our son who's adopted um, from Randa who used to look after the goats in the fields when he was a little boy. And he had nothing to do except, look after the goats and make sure they didn't escape and make sure they didn't eat each other. And um, he understands not doing much, much better than me. Much better. And that's, that, that's just, you know, that's just cultural. That's your conditioning. That's a lovely phrase, not doing. He understands not doing. That's a great phrase. I love that so much. Again, Muji says he talks about um, yeah, a peaceful life is priceless and a peaceful mind is priceless but the way he says it is come on my god you're so right it's so true you know again it's they call it ikigai in japan don't they it's like doing things with full attention you know if you're gonna eat eat if you're gonna chop chop if you're gonna cook cook if you're gonna talk talk if you're gonna listen listen indeed it's quite simple isn't it really and as for writing just pulling the chair up to the desk is enough. Pick up your pen and write. Start. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if it's rubbish or you think it's rubbish. The next day you will find something inside it. Yeah, or it will find you. Or it will find you. You never know. I mean, writing's very odd. I can write something and then come back to it the next day and go, who wrote that? <laughs> That's good, isn't it? Not me. <laughs> but you have to be available for the, for the muse to visit you. You know, Tom Waits was driving down um, a freeway one day and he just said, I just felt the song coming to me. I had to, I, I just, I just shouted. I just said, I'm driving. <laughs> Not now. Not now. Can't you see I'm driving? Yeah. They say that about 2020. It's the noisiest year ever. It's like, enough already, 2020. Back the truck up. For heaven's sake, we're supposed to be living you. You're living, this is the wrong way around. That's yes. how it feels this year, maybe. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, bit. I've been lucky enough to, you know, not be dealing with so much stuff people yeah. have had to deal with. Three more things. Okay. Okay, uh, so the first thing is you've enacted a few accents in this conversation. You have an amazing ear, right? So having an amazing ear to be able to detect what an accent is and the nuances within that accent is one thing, but then having the vocal ability to recreate them is another. Where the heck did you get that from? It's probably music, because all accents are music. Right. I don't think, personally, I'm very good at accents. Um, some I'm okay at, but um, the young, this generation, my daughter's generation. The young. The young are really good because they've heard so many more accents. So you take my mum's generation, there were no nothing. You know, everybody spoke like that on the radio, on the BBC. And in fact, my mother also spoke like that. And uh, literally on, on play school, we're going to read you a story now about little Hamble. And she, she, she we listened to her. She says, what the fuck, mum, what was that? She said, I don't know. I don't know. Everybody talked like that. Everyone did. They can't possibly have spoken like that. But there was nothing on the radio except that. But now 
everywhere. You hear so many accents. My daughter can do anything because she, also she listens to podcasts. And how many voices do we hear now? Yeah. It's exciting. I love that. But you just nail Barbara Streisand. And you also love to, you know, when, when you tell a story, you do take on, you, you go for it, don't you? Yeah, that's the performance. That's the performer. Right. I can't help it. But I love it so much. It's so cool. What's your favourite accent? Well, probably a sort of Glaswegian accent. Quite tough, yeah. Absolutely, that's brilliant. 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 Because it's got a W in it. Where the fuck did that come from? God, you sound like Charlene. You sound like Charlene. Do you know Charlene? That's (laughs) you even had the same tongue as her. Who's Charlene? Charlene's Patera from Texas. Oh, bloody hell. She's not from Texas. She's from Glasgow, but she's in a band called Texas. Oh my God, really? That, that was her. You that were her. her. You were actually, she lives around the corner. We can go and check. Come on, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I didn't know she lived around the corner. She has forever, by the way. She's very, she's very wild. I love Charlene. One of my favorite people in the whole wide world. Oh. Just on that. So just b- before we finish, um, where are we now? Without giving out the address. Mm. You know, but where are we? How significant is where we are right now in your life? Well, it's where I've lived all my life. So born and bred a Londoner, lived round the corner till I was seven and then mum and dad got a bit of money and bought a house on this road. Then my dad died and my mum bought a flat and I was living in my uncle's also dead flat up the road. Then then Ken and I got married and bought the house opposite mum because it came up for sale, weird. My sister moved into the old flat. My son's in that flat now. Um, <laughs> my sister-in-law moved in down the road. I've lived in this street for 61 years. So cool though, isn't it? It's great because, you know... I, I, so efficient. You got Well, you can go, can't you? You can... There's a continuum, which is amazing. Yeah. I remember when there was only a wimpy around the corner and now there's about... I, can ne- I will never forget the first time I got a cappuccino on a high street. It was like you just couldn't you couldn't credit the fact that you were getting a cappuccino. Cappuccino, you only got cappuccinos if you got on your Transalpino train to Italy or or France or Trans- somewhere cappuccino European. Train. You know, but it's just amazing. And now that, of course, there's about seventy five coffee shops. But also the lack of upheaval, the fact you haven't moved. You know, and you've never had that. You know. The, the great we li- we lived in a rented house for a few years, mm-hmm. my wife and I and the kids. And it was a real sort of it was a real there's a real freedom in it because we couldn't do anything to the house because it wasn't ours. Yeah. So all the all those silly decisions when you're a bit bored, yeah. They, they, and you've never you've never had that because you've not moved. So yeah. that's 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 really that's really cool, isn't it? I well I find it. So I thought it was a bit odd for a while, and I thought that I ought to go and live exactly. in Spitalfields yeah. or something and be. Yeah cool and london but and because where i live was absolutely the suburbs when i was a little one yeah it really was and you wouldn't get a cab to bring you out here because they wouldn't get a a, a fare back into town but now it's 20 minutes on the tube greg um who was who who mistook kate winslet for you for a while didn't he well, he thought he was supposed to fall in love with Kate. Because a, witch, a witchy poo friend told him. A witchy poo friend told him. That, <laughs> yeah, and I was married. I and he thought, well, he desperately tried to take Kate out. I think he took her somewhere spooky and wibbly-wobbly, like um, lots of crystals and weirdnesses, thinking something's going to happen, something's going to happen. And it so didn't. And Kate was completely bored. <laughs> Poor shitless. And he thought, well, it's not her. Can't be her. 
Yeah. But the witchy poo said somebody you're working on a job with at the time or something yeah, like that. Got, yes, he's going to be your. And he looked partner. left, and, and and you were right. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's so cool. And and then um, you say that he disappears sometimes into his shed, and does he fashion wood? Yes, yes, he's basically a woodsman. Right. In fact, I'm married a tree, more or less. He's just, that's what he does. He loves, and he's now got into the whole, everything that we're starting to learn about trees right. and how intelligent they are yeah. and how extraordinary they are. So yeah. he's just on that road. And we plant, this year we planted hundreds of trees up in Scotland, deciduous and Scots pines and, you know, little things. But watered them and hand planted yeah, them yeah. and dibbled them in. Because you know Dame Judy's, she's into her. She knows she made a film about trees. Do you know I did, but I haven't seen it. So you she she just me. she had the whole listening pipe and everything going on so to listen to the trees' heartbeat, and it's a brilliant documentary. Oh, I've got. I haven't seen it. It's brilliant, brilliant. Okay, I'll get that. I'll get that. Okay, so he disappears. Has he got a woodshed? He's got um, a work shed where he's got a like a lathe right and bands or a lathe. Can he, he turn makes, a lathe? He can turn a lathe. How come he can turn a lathe? He's a fucking actor. Where, where, who took, where, where did he pick? You don't pick he's up turning irritating. a lathe. As I, he, he was basically running the UN when he was 17, but he just decided against it. He's oh, one of those polymath people oh, who can do quite a lot. It's very irritating. And how was your 25th? How was your anniversary? Um... Congratulations, well, by the way. It was this, but it's not our wedding anniversary. It's our anniversary. It's our Getting sort of together. shagging anniversary, basically. <laughs> well, I think that's the important one. The best way to celebrate that, then, is, of course... Indeed. What can I tell Excellent. you? Excellent. Moving on. Yeah. Right. Um, underscore, underscore. <laughs> and this is it. We're done. One more. Castioni. <laughs> I think. I think to have shagged the same person for 25 years... And still want to shag them is really a great thing. Of course it is. I just go. It's the I, best I thing think ever. That's marvelous. Do you know about the peas in the jar? I, do I want to know about the peas in the <laughs> jar? Tell me. So there's a there's there's a school of thought. I love schools of thought. There's a school of thought. It's not yes. Fun, but there's a school of thought. So when you meet somebody, every time you have a shag, you put a pea in a jar, right? <laughs> then you get married, yeah. and every time you have a shag, you take a pea out of the jar. And what you don't want is loads of peas left when one of you croaks it. <laughs> That's brilliant. It's too late now. I'd have to guess. Will you do the math? Yes, we could do the math. What do you think? How, how long did you get? How long was it before you got married? I mean, yeah, four God. years. Four years. So you got a chance. You got a chance. See, Tash and I, we got married six months after we met. I got no chance. No, forget it. Forget you it. Can't. It's pathetic. You. It's not really a school of thought, is it? No, I didn't no, really I know what other phrase. No, I think that's a bit of a misnomer. I think you've given it a little bit more credit Can than I just say? Yeah. Anyway, just saying. Okay. Go on. Um, ten years ago, you were asked what you're most scared of, and you said, nothing other than myself. Just myself, really, mostly. Are you less scared or more scared of yourself ten years later? Oh, much less scared. Not scared at all anymore. Because it's all dissolved. Bye. Bye, self. It's all right. It's all all right. No worries. Doesn't matter. Get into trouble. Say things. Be shouted at. Get a shout on. That's fine. None of it. It's fine. It's not like I'm going to just not care anymore or not be around anymore or not 
have the opinion or say the thing or do the action or join the campaign or all of that. I'll carry on. But I'm not scared of it in the same way as thinking, feeling it as a real burden of responsibility. I must be this thing. Don't feel that anymore at all. So for the rest of us, how do we stop being scared of ourselves? The only way is to let go of yourself. That's the only way, I think. Otherwise, it's difficult not to be frightened of what you might do because you think you're this way or you're that way. You think you're shy or you think you're too forceful or you think you're uncontrolled or you think whatever you think about yourself. Let go of that and trust. Just trust in the moment and trust in just being. Just trust it and don't take any notice of the shit FM. It'll be there all the time. But just let yourself go, oh, you know what? That's just going on, that noise. That's fine. And don't get worried about it because it will just keep on going. That's that's how we are. That's what human beings do in our culture particularly. I mean, you know, if you were listening to this and you were an Inuit in the Arctic, you probably wouldn't think like this. But we do. And the people listening to this podcast are probably experts on shit FM. That's not to be rude about the podcast, by the way, everybody. Um, I think podcasts are great. I mean, we'd never be able to get into depth like this, even, you know, a little moment of soul exchange. You can't do that in normal interviews at all. So anyway, that's what you do. Don't be scared. Let go and just have faith. You're okay. You're absolutely fine. Okay, I'll let you go. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Bye. <laughs> How good was she? There is nothing like a dame except another dame. All right, we're going to put the dames on hold for a while, if that's okay. You know, Dame Judy Dench, Dame Emma Thompson. There are other dames. We'll get to them as and when we can fit them in, for heaven's sake. In the meantime, please review, rate, and subscribe. Until next time, bye-bye.